I am here. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. You are real. I am. I have seen the misery of my people. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring them out of Egypt. But how can I set them free? I'm not a prince now. I'm nothing. I will be with you. Subtitles, great. I have no clue what uh, language that is. Is that Swedish or German or what is that? That was German? All right. Couldn't find it without those subtitles, but I uh, wanted to give you a quick clip, kind of whetting your appetites for what we're looking at today in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Uh, over the last month, we've been looking at some defining moments of some of the most important characters in the book of Genesis. And we turn the page this week to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Chapters 3 and 4 as we look at a defining moment of good old Moses. So many of you are familiar with the story, and so we're going to paint the backdrop for you today. Uh, Fast forward a little bit to that point in time when Moses has that defining moment. I encourage you to have your Bibles with you today. Open Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Also encourage you to pull out the message notes from your bulletin along with a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way uh, because God has some important lessons for us as we look at this pivotal place in Scripture today together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for these moments we've been uh, spending time looking at in the past month. And Father, whether it's been Adam and Eve's defining moment there in the Garden of Eden or Abraham as he was there on the mountain, Uh, with that dagger in hand, as you had told him to sacrifice his one and only son. Uh, Lord, whether it was Isaac who allowed his dad to act in obedience, whether it was Jacob who wrestled with you throughout the night, or whether it was Joseph who we looked at last week, Lord, who stood firmly in integrity, uh, Lord, when he was accused, uh, when he was falsely charged and thrown into slavery. Lord, we thank you for teaching us over the past month how to stand firm in our faith, 
hold on to our integrity, and Lord, to walk in obedience to your commands as you give us these defining moments in our lives. And we do pray, O God, that as we dive into your word today, you would speak to us and shape us into the image of Christ in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So we are there in Exodus chapter 3. I'll kind of give you the backdrop here. The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, the hero of our faith that we looked at last week. Uh, Remember that Joseph was lifted up by God into that high position in the nation of Egypt. He was the second most powerful man in Egypt. Uh, God had allowed him uh, to understand the dreams of Pharaoh, that there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And because he was able to reveal this to Pharaoh ahead of time, he was able to help Pharaoh stockpile all of this produce and, and grain for those seven lean years. And during the seven lean years, his own brothers came down from Canaan that was also experiencing a famine. And Joseph was able to save the lives of his father and his 11 brothers because God was with him. As Genesis ends, Joseph dies after allowing his family to come down to Egypt to a suburb called Goshen. And it's there in Goshen that those 70 uh, Israelites, that, that tiny little nation that had just begun, Uh, was able to plant down some roots. And the Pharaoh in Joseph's day loved those 70 Israelites. But at least 200 years passes, and we find out early in chapter 1 of Genesis that a new uh, Pharaoh arose who didn't know about Joseph. And that new Pharaoh didn't look at a nation of Israelites that was only 70 strong. Within a couple hundred years, that 70 uh, uh, number had blossomed to over 1 million. And so there in the suburb of Egypt are over 1 million Israelites. And we read in the early verses of Exodus 1 that this new Pharaoh begins to look on them with suspicion. Here's what we read in Exodus 1, verses 6 through 9. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. And so the sheer size of the Israelite nation really spooked this new Pharaoh. Uh, He was convinced that if they got a little upset with him and a little upset with the Egyptians, their sheer size would threaten the security of Egypt. If they had an uprising, they could overrule Pharaoh and his soldiers. And so he has a plan to place those Israelites into slavery. And, And that's where we begin to see Moses coming onto the scene within a few years. Because these Israelites are made slaves, and and Pharaoh sees that as they're slaves, he will work them hard. And he figures that if he works them hard and puts slave masters over them to beat them, to abuse them, to attack them, he thought for certain their numbers will plummet. If I'm harsh with them as my slaves, uh, the men are going to drop dead from heat exhaustion. Uh, The women are going to have miscarriages because they're overworked when they're pregnant. But what Pharaoh finds to his surprise is the harder he works them, the more fruitful they are. Now, how is that possible? It was possible because God was with them. So Pharaoh's plan A didn't work too well. 
So Pharaoh shifts over to plan B. Plan B is to go to the two main Hebrew midwives. Their names were Shifra and Pua. He goes to them and says, here's what I want you to do. When you're delivering the Hebrew babies, if a baby boy is born, you are to immediately kill him. And they nodded their heads and say, no problem, no problem. They didn't pay attention to him. They didn't do what he said. Plan B didn't work. Shifra and Pua did not obey the king. They didn't fear the king as much as they feared the Lord their God. And so they would not lift their hand to injure these baby boys. And so the Israelite nations continues to mushroom in size. And so he goes with plan C. Plan C is to take every baby boy that is born of the Israelites and have his soldiers throw them into the Nile River to be eaten by the crocodiles, to drown, whatever would kill them. And so he orders his soldiers to throw the baby boys into the Nile River. And that's where we're introduced to a baby boy who his mother places in a reed basket and sends him downstream. And God directs that little reed basket with that baby boy to one of the princesses of Egypt. And she falls in love with that little baby boy. It's love at first sight. She adopts him as her own, and she names him Moses. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 1. She adopted Moses as her own. As you look at Moses' life, In the book of Exodus, it becomes clear in that first chapter and into the second chapter that there are three periods of Moses' life. Each of these three periods of Moses' life was 40 years long. So Moses died at the age of 120. That was a a nice ripe age to to die. But he uh, had three periods of 40 years each uh, in his life. During his first 40 years, you can fill this in on your handout, Moses lived in Egypt as a prince. He lived in Egypt as a prince. One of those princesses raised him as her own. He was a prince of Egypt, as one of the movies in the 90s uh, was called that depicted his life. The second period of his life, uh, remember what happens at the age of 40. uh, He has learned that he is not uh, an Egyptian, that he was adopted. He learns that he is truly an Israelite, a Hebrew, and he begins to develop a heart for his own people. And at the age of 40, this prince of Egypt sees one of the slave masters beating one of the Israelite slaves. And he gets so furious, he kills that slave master. And he tries to do a quick cover-up, but it becomes clear that he is now a wanted man. So he flees from his life, for his life at the age of 40. He flees from Egypt and goes into the desert of Midian. So the second period of his life, the second 40 years, Moses lived in Midian as a shepherd. So first 40 years in Egypt as a prince, second 40 years in Midian as a shepherd, and then the third period of his life he's best known for, the final 40 years, Moses led the Israelites from slavery in Egypt to freedom in Canaan as a deliverer. So first period, prince. Second period, shepherd. And then the final 40 years, he's the deliverer of his people, Israel. And so let's pick up in Exodus chapter 3. Say amen if you're there. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. So here in chapter 3, he's almost at the end of that second 40-year period of his life. He's almost at the end of that second 40 years as he's been serving for that period of time as a shepherd. So he was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over to see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, Here am I. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the father, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, as Exodus 3 begins, Moses is doing what he had been pretty much doing for the past 40 years. He's out there in the desert leading his sheep. He had settled in early in Midian after fleeing from Egypt 40 years earlier, and he had uh, befriended the priest of Midian. And that priest of Midian had a daughter named Zipporah, and, and the priest gave Zipporah to Moses as his wife. He had two sons, so he got married and, and was raising his two boys during that 40-year period. But for the most part, he was just watching the sheep. And on this occasion, Moses ventured out a little further from home than usual. Most likely, he did this in search of greener pastures for his sheep. Moses led his flock to the far side of the desert, all the way to Mount Horeb, which later in the book of Exodus is called Mount Sinai. Sound familiar? So here he is at Mount Sinai, where he sees this amazing sight, this burning bush. we put an image on the screen for you. It's impossible, I think, to, to fully depict uh, what this looked like. Do we have that picture in the computer today yeah so yeah it's impossible to full to beautifully depict what went on but this isn't a, a bad attempt you know imagine this bush that's got these these brilliant bright flames but he can somehow see through the flames to see that the foliage on the bush is not even turning gray or or, or not shriveling up in the least the bush is is unfazed by the flames that are coming from it And so he draws closer to to see this strange sight. It's the strangest thing that Moses had ever seen. And you better believe if he had been watching sheep for 40 years in the desert, uh, pretty much he'd seen it all. Uh, This desert, you know, he'd seen it for 40 years. There wasn't really anything interesting that he hadn't seen before. Until he sees this bush on fire that's not burning. And so he, in curiosity, moves closer and closer and closer to this bush. And all of a sudden, as he gets close, he hears a voice coming from within the bush, Moses, Moses. You think maybe he was a little bit spooked? Okay, the bush looked weird, but now the bush is talking. Okay, this is, this is a strange thing. And so the bush is calling to him, Moses, uh, Moses. God proceeds to tell Moses to take off his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. 
And then God reveals his identity to Moses in verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And beginning in verse 7, the Lord reveals the purpose for his visit. Notice what he says there in verse 7. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Isn't that just like God? When his people suffer, sometimes it might feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Sometimes it might feel like God doesn't care. But the word of God is so, so clear over and over again. It makes it clear that God cares about his people when his people are hurting. He says, I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then in verse 10, God lowers the boom. He says, this is my plan. I'm concerned about my people, Moses. I'm going to rescue my people, Moses, and here's how I'm going to do it. In verse 10, he says, now go. I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, up until that point, when God lowers the boom, Moses is surprised. He's probably a little scared. He's in awe. He's never seen a bush burn like this. And he certainly never had God speak to him through a burning bush. He's in awe. But all of a sudden, when God lowers the boom and says, this is my plan, and you're a big part of it, Moses, Moses starts doing a little backpedaling. If you really think about it, Moses was a really odd, odd choice to be the deliverer of the Israelites. Think about it. So how old is he when God speaks to him at the burning bush here? Eighty years old. Moses is no spring chicken. In the movies, typically he's depicted as a young middle-aged man. Charlton Heston looked like he was, what, 40 or something when he played the part of Moses at the burning bush. You look at all the newer films, animated or otherwise, they almost always depict Moses with brown hair, you know, a fairly young guy. He was 80, 80 years old. And so he wouldn't have been most people's first choice to be the deliverer. He's 80 years old. You know, he's gotten his ARP card for, what, 15, 20 years by then. And so he's 80 years old. You wouldn't think he's a great choice. But not only that, if he goes back to Egypt, he's got a rap sheet. Remember, he was wanted for murder 40 years earlier. And he never paid the price for that in the Egyptians' minds. And so not only is he 80 years old, he's got a rap sheet back there in Egypt where God is calling him to go back and deliver his people. And not only that, Moses has been sitting in a desert as a shepherd for 40 years. He hasn't been leading people. He hasn't been delivering people. He's been picking his nose out in the field with the sheep as they go back. He was not your normal choice to be a leader or deliverer of over a million people. And so you can't really fault Moses for kind of scratching his head and wondering, God, why on earth are you coming to me with this calling? Beginning in verse 11, Moses shares five different reasons why he thinks God has chosen the wrong man. And we're going to look at each of those five excuses that Moses gives today. Five excuses, reasons why he shouldn't be the one to go deliver his people. The first of those excuses we find in verses 11 and 12. Here it is, excuse number one, I'm a nobody. 
I'm a nobody. Look at verses 11 and 12 there in chapter 3. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Remember what mountain it was? Mount Sinai. This is my sign. You'll worship me on this very mountain. God has just shared his grand plan for delivering over one million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses' first response is not, wow, God, what a great idea. I have a heart for those people, too. That's a great idea. You want to deliver them out of slavery. His first thought, his first response is that, God, you're really a a stand-up guy for paying attention to this nation of Israel. I'm proud of you, God. Great job. Those aren't his reactions at all. His first reaction, his first response is to simply ask, who am I? Who am I? To which God responds, I will be with you. Say those words with me. I will be with you. Turn to the person next to you and say, God promises I will be with you. Go ahead. It's a promise of God. As we follow his son, Jesus Christ, I will be with you. In other words, God tells Moses, Moses, it's not about you. Moses' first reaction is, who am I? And God says, "Uh uh-uh, it ain't about you, Moses. It's not about you. It's about me. Take your eyes off of yourself and focus them on me. Just as I was with Joseph when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, I will be with you as you lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. As long as I am with you, you will succeed. Moses had his eyes focused on himself, and God immediately says, No, you focus those eyes on me. God reveals a wonderful little confirmation that what he is telling Moses is true. God calls it a sign. After Moses leads his people out of slavery in Egypt, he'll return to that same mountain, Mount Sinai, and he will worship God there. And you remember what happens a few months later right there on Mount Sinai. Moses is there. He goes up onto the mountain, and God gives him a couple tablets. Have you heard of those? He gives him those Ten Commandments. And not only that, God gives him the other 603 laws of Moses. There on Mount Sinai, he would be given the 613 laws of Moses, including the starter kit, those Ten Commandments that he had on those tablets. Well, that's all the explanation Moses needed, right? He asked, who am I? And and God says, no, 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 don't focus on yourself. Focus on me. I will be with you. And so at this point, Moses says, okay, I'm sold. I'm ready to go, God, right? Right? Not exactly. Excuse number two. God, I don't know your name. I don't know your name. We find that in verses 13 through 22. Starting in verse 13, Moses said to God, "Uh, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what is his name? And what shall I say, say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let your people go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. So Moses' first excuse was, God, who am I? Who am I? And Moses' second excuse to God was basically, God, who are you? Who am I, but also, who are you? Who are you? From Moses' perspective, simply saying, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. From his perspective, that didn't cut the mustard. From his perspective, he thought, no, that's too vague. The people aren't going to believe me. What if they ask me, who sent you? What is his name? And so... Just like he did in response to Moses' first excuse, God obliges Moses by revealing his holiest name in all of Scripture. I am who I am. Now, for us in uh, our English-speaking world, this name of God doesn't carry necessarily the punch that would have carried in Moses' day to the Hebrew people. This name of God reveals that he is the self-existent one with no beginning and no ending. So you think about that present tense, I am. So whether it was before time began, before time began, God was, I am. Whether you're talking about 10,000 years ago, God just as surely was, I am. Today, on this day, June 10th, 2018, God is, I am. And 100,000 years from now, long into eternity, God still is, I am. He is the only self-existent one who even before the beginning of time still am. God is the great I am. It reveals he is the self-existent one, always eternal. Today, tomorrow, throughout all eternity, I am. Unlike any being in the universe, even the greatest and most powerful angels, even unlike them, God always is. And in verse 15, God reveals a different form of his name, I am. It's the name Yahweh. Yahweh. We have it on the screen and also in your handout, I believe. Uh, Yahweh, in the Hebrew, only has four letters. There are four consonants, Y-H-W-H. In the Hebrew language, the ancient Hebrew has no vowels, only had consonants. 
And so there were four letters in this name of God, Y-H-W-H. We don't even know exactly how to pronounce it since there were no vowels. And since the Jewish people for thousands of years have considered this name so holy, they don't say it out loud. Uh, They usually, when they say the word out loud, will replace it with God's lesser name, Adonai, which is a lesser form of the name Lord. And so because the Hebrews don't pronounce it out loud for thousands of years, and because there are no vowels, we have to guess. And so our best guess is we put an A between the Y and the H and an E between the W and the H. We believe it was pronounced Yahweh. We believe it was pronounced Yahweh. Some over the years have put different vowels in there and said it is Jehovah. Uh, we know for certain it was not pronounced Jehovah because there was no J sound in the Hebrew language. It was a Y sound, not a J. And so Jehovah is referring to this holiest name of God. It's just a mispronunciation of how they would have pronounced it back then. So this name Yahweh is really the same name as I am. The reason I have tetragrammaton on the screen, tetragrammaton is the Greek word for four letters. Tetra meaning four, gramma meaning word or letters. And so four letters in this, Y-H-W-H, if you ever happen to be reading in a Bible commentary and you read this word tetragrammaton, it's simply a fancy scholarly way of referring to this name Yahweh. And so it's the holiest name of God. So here's how it works. God says, my name is I am. I am means he is the self-existent one. When God is referring to himself, God refers to himself as I am. When we refer to God, we use the term Yahweh or Jehovah because that is the third person form of the word he is. Make sense? So God referring to himself, I am, us referring to God, Yahweh, he is. It's the same word. He is the self-existent one, the one who always, always is. And so here's this wonderful revealing of God's name. Moses is asked him, well, God, uh, what if they ask for your name? I don't know your name. What is your name? And so he reveals his holiest name, Yahweh. And so in the Old Testament, this holiest name of God, Yahweh, is used over 6,500 times. It was the name that the Jewish people latched onto, and that described better than any other name their holy God, the creator of heaven and earth, the self-existent one. And so if you're reading in your English Bible, which most of you are, maybe a few of you have a Spanish translation, but if you're reading in the English Bible, if you are in the Old Testament, whenever you find the name of God, Lord, in English, and that word Lord has all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, whenever you see Lord in all capital letters, you can know that's a translation of God's holiest name, Yahweh. So you'll find Lord in all capital letters around 6,500 times in the Old Testament. We translate it as Lord most of the time when we're translating Yahweh into English. And so he gives these two excuses, God, who am I, and God, who are you? Well, at this point, certainly, Moses is ready to hightail it into Egypt, right? Because God has told him, I will be with you, and God has given him his holiest name. Unfortunately, Moses is still not convinced. Excuse number three, nobody will believe me. Nobody will believe me. It's in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, Moses replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. 
and Moses ran from it. Must have been a pretty scary-looking snake. Uh, Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. How many of you would have obeyed the word of the Lord there? Yeah, God, it's pretty awesome, this whole burning bush thing. You knew me by name, and you gave me your holiest name. But can we do something other than pick up the viper by the tail? But Moses maybe had started to learn his lesson. He obeyed God, and he did what God told him to do. Moses reached out, he took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff. Isn't that great? It didn't turn back and bite his arm. You know, It turned back into a staff. Verse 5, this, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, notice the word Lord there, all capital letters, so he's starting to use the word Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then Yahweh, the Lord, said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he pulled it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, They may believe the second, but if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile River and pour the water on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, I didn't realize this before, but as I was studying this passage and reading in some commentaries, I learned that there's some powerful symbolism in the Egyptian world with each of these signs that God gives to Moses. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that this question he asks, his third excuse, nobody will believe me. Now, there's a problem with this excuse because God has already dealt with that question in prior verses. Moses says, you know, God, I don't think anybody will believe me or listen to me. But God had just told him in verse 18 of chapter 3, the elders of Israel will listen to you, Moses. So just a a moment earlier, maybe a minute or two earlier, God had told Moses, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to the leaders of Israel and say, God is going to deliver you. He's chosen me to be the deliverer. They will believe you. And then a minute or two later, right here in chapter 4, he's saying, God, what if they don't believe me? God has got to be pulling out his hair a bit. Moses, I already answered that question. They will believe you. But God is patient. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. And so he doesn't jump all over Moses at this point. He will in a little bit, but not yet. And so God says, here are three different signs to ensure that they believe you. Number one, Moses' rod became a snake. There's something interesting about the symbolism I didn't realize before. In Egypt, the rod was a symbol of authority, and the snake was a symbol of Pharaoh himself. So it seems as though through this sign... God had designed this sign to communicate to Pharaoh in no uncertain terms that God's authority exceeded his own authority. That's kind of cool. A not-so-subtle message through this sign that he would do in Pharaoh's court. Sign number two, Moses' healthy hand became leprous. This sign seemed to be a, a foreshadowing of God striking Egypt's health with sickness. In some of the ten plagues, God would be striking Uh, Egypt with illness sign number three was the water from the Nile would be turned to blood Egypt's uh, Egypt's livelihood was completely dependent upon the Nile River it was a thriving powerful nation but that thriving nation was completely dependent on their water source there that Nile River 
And so by taking that water from their precious worshipped river and turning it into blood, God was basically saying, in your face, Pharaoh, I can take your livelihood away like that. And so it was a slam on the prosperity of Egypt. God demonstrated his control over Egypt's prosperity. So now Moses was armed with God's most holy name, and he's armed with these three powerful uh, signs to prove that Moses was sent by God to deliver his people. So Moses is finally ready to obey God's command, right? Sadly, not yet. Excuse number four. I'm not good at public speaking. I'm not good at public speaking. Look at verses 10 through 12 there in chapter 4. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, uh, neither in the past nor uh, since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I want you to notice something. I've read this for years, and I missed this in the past. In verse 10, he says, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. What is the only time up to this point that we know that God spoke to Moses? The only time we know that God spoke to Moses was right now at this burning bush, right? So notice what he's saying there. I have never been eloquent, neither before you spoke to me nor after. So God, I stumbled all over my words five minutes ago, and you for the last five minutes been speaking to me through this bush, and you gave me your name, and that's great and all. And you said you were going to be with me. That's, that's pretty cool. But you notice as I'm talking to you right now, I can't string an intelligible sentence together even right now. Moses was saying, God, it's great meeting with you, but I'm still not eloquent. Hmm. Still not eloquent. He goes on to say, or the Lord says to him, verse 11, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God's starting to get a little frustrated here. Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Moses' fourth excuse is, I'm not good at public speaking. Let me ask you to answer honestly, how many of you have ever used this excuse? Come on. You know what? How about this? I'm not good at sharing my testimony. You know what? I, I, I can't share the gospel. I'm going to mess it up. I, I, I can't share the gospel like that elder can. I, I, can't, I can't share the gospel like Alan back there in back does. And he does this topic Tuesday online, live on Facebook every, every Tuesday night. Man, he's talking for 10 or 15 minutes. and Wow, no notes. It's pretty incredible. I can't do that. I'm not eloquent. I can't share my testimony. I can't share my faith. I can't give a devotion. I can't pray out loud. Come on, get those hands up. How many of you have used any of these excuses? I've heard half of you say, no, 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 I won't pray out loud. You go ahead and do it. I can't pray out loud. I'm lousy at public speaking. If all of us were honest today, most of our hands would be in the air. Most of us have used these excuses at some time or another. You know what? I'll let the preacher do that. I'll let the pastor or the elder do that. I'll let the Sunday school teacher do that. You know, Dan, I know you told me I'm, I'm supposed to be the head of my home and I should be leading my kids in prayer and I should be leading my kids in a daily family devotion of some sort. But you know what? I'm just not any good at it. I'll, I'll, I'll just bring them to Sunday school. I'll, I'll just bring them to Awana. I'll just bring them to church. and I'll let someone else do it. This excuse that Moses gives God is so, so common in the church today. 
God has not gifted me with eloquence, so God, I'm not your man. Let me ask you, did this excuse work for Moses? So God has been telling him, Moses, you're the one. Moses, you're the one. Moses, you're the one. And here, excuse number four, God, I'm not very eloquent. Finally, God says, you know what? That makes sense to me, Moses. You're right. I picked the wrong guy. Let me go find someone else. Forgive me for taking your time. God doesn't accept the excuse from Moses, and he doesn't accept it from you and me. You may look at me and say, well, Dane, you have the gift of gab. You have the gift of eloquence, and that's true to a very large extent. But I'm telling you, I can get into certain situations where I cannot string an intelligible sentence together. I get into situations where whatever eloquence I may have up here on a Sunday morning is out the door for whatever reason. But there are times in those situations where God makes it clear, I have called you, Dane, to speak anyway. And you and I may be able to relate with each other in this area of eloquence more than you realize. Because every single one of us have situations where we get nervous and we just can't think straight and the words just don't flow off our tongues. And it's then especially that we have to trust the voice of the Lord and speak on his behalf anyway. Amen? God calls us to speak. And we have to trust that he will give us the words to say. And even if to ourselves they don't seem to be coming off our tongue correctly, God will use those for his great purposes if he has called us to speak. Well, God gets a little upset with Moses in verse 11. Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Once again, Moses uh, is is calling and his marching orders have nothing to do with Moses and his weaknesses. God's calling upon him has everything to do with God's ability to empower us in the midst of our weakness. It's about God's strength, not about Moses' weakness. I love how Warren Wearsby explains this in his commentary. He writes, Moses completely missed the message of God's name and God's miraculous power. Listen to this, church. Wearsby says, I am is all that we need in every circumstance of life. And it's foolish for us to argue, I am not. If God can turn rods into serpents and serpents into rods, then he can enable Moses to speak his word with power. Do you believe that? It's not about I am not. It's about that God is. I am is always more important than I am not. God's holiest name reveals that in every situation in life, God is all we need. Whatever problem we face, it's not about I am not. It's about God is. So God gets frustrated with Moses here because Moses won't take his eyes off himself and focus on God. He, in essence, is saying, Moses, what part of I am don't you understand? I am all-knowing. I am all-powerful. I am perfect in all of my ways. I am choosing you to deliver my people from slavery in Egypt. I am the strength that is sufficient for you. I am wisdom in that my wisdom is sufficient for you. My eloquence is sufficient for you. My promises are sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you because, Moses, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Moses had completely missed the message of I am, and he had completely missed the message of God's three signs that he had given him. Sticks don't transform into snakes. That's impossible. Perfectly healthy hands do not suddenly become shriveled, leprous hands. That's impossible. 
and clear water doesn't become blood, that's impossible. Exactly God's point. It's impossible. God specializes in the impossible. So transforming an insecure 80-year-old felon into an eloquent leader of over a million people, no problem for God. No problem. Nothing is impossible with God. Moses needed to come to grips with the reality that he could do all things through Christ who gives him strength. One final excuse, excuse number five, starts in verse 13. The excuse boils down to this, God, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Look, starting in verse 13, Moses said, oh, Lord, please, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it. In verse 13, Moses made one last feeble attempt to get God to let him off the hook. Oh, Lord, please send somebody else, anyone else. Send the sheep. I don't care. Send anyone. Notice that Lord, as Moses addressed God in verse 13, Lord is not in all capital letters. He doesn't even address God with his new holiest name that God had just revealed to him. He uses a lesser form. Lord. Please send someone else. Moses still doesn't get it. He, in essence, is saying, God, I just don't want to go. Please pick someone else, anyone but me. And God burns with anger. He says, fine, I'll send your brother Aaron to help you speak to Pharaoh. And that's exactly what God did. He sent Aaron with his brother Moses. And finally, after unsuccessfully getting God to bite at any one of his five excuses, finally we read these encouraging words in verse 20. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. We look at Moses, who later on in Scripture is called the most humble man on earth. And we ask the question, how on earth could God have chosen him? Well, we find in the New Testament that God decides to choose the humble things and the lowly things to shame the wise. God oftentimes will take the humble man who thinks he is the worst choice, the humble woman who thinks she is the least skilled and the least eloquent person on the planet. Oftentimes that's the exact person God will choose to do great things because when God works through that man or works through that woman or works through that teenager, everyone around can know without a doubt that it's all God because God specializes in working his strength through our weaknesses. Here's that one powerful lesson I want to leave you with today. God already knows your weaknesses. And his plans are always best. So, when he asks you to do something, trust him and obey him. And as you do, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. That verse has a caveat. It doesn't say I can do all things. It says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens 
me. As we trust him, as we love him, as we walk in obedience to his commands, God will allow you to do the impossible. So when God asks you to do the last thing that you thought God would ever ask you to do, when God comes to you and asks you to walk in obedience to his command, even if it doesn't make sense, even if you'd much rather be stuck in the desert of Victorville, I mean the desert of Midian, watching the sheep, when God asks you to move, when God asks you to act, when God asks you to speak, you walk in obedience to the Lord's command and say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Lord, thank you for choosing this very humble, this very meek, this very insecure 80-year-old man to do one of the greatest things you've ever asked any person on this earth to do, to be your mouthpiece, to be your hands, to be your leadership on earth, to deliver over a million of your people out of slavery into the promised land. Lord, the Jewish people for over 3,500 years have looked back to this last 40 years of Moses' life as one of the most pivotal and important periods in all of Jewish history. Lord, just when he thought he was winding down in life and didn't have much left to offer, Lord, you used him in the greatest ways. So I'm pretty sure, Lord, there's many of us in this room today that look back on our past years and say, you know, I've pretty much done most of what God's called me to do. My best days are behind me. I'm just going to buy my time and just go through the motions and maybe do a little bit here and there for God, but the best days are behind me. I pray for those, Lord, that have bought into that lie of the enemy today. I just pray, O oh God, that you would remind them. You would remind me that as long as there is breath in our lungs, as long as our hearts are beating, you are not through with us yet. And for some of us, Lord, we may find our most impactful years in our retirement years. For some of us, Lord, for so many of us, in fact, Lord, you've got some of our greatest, greatest work still to come. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, that you would call us to obedience, and that, Lord, we would answer the call before giving you five excuses, not after. Help us to learn what Moses eventually learned, that your call is irrevocable when you speak to one of your own. Lord Jesus, help us to walk in obedience to your command and not drag our feet. In Jesus' name.